Matthew 26. Matthew 26 this morning. Continue our study in the book of Matthew. And we'll be looking at verses 31 through 35. I don't think anyone here this morning wants to be thought of as weak or prone to stumbling in our Christianity. But you know, even as I just sang, there are times when we feel that way, isn't it? We feel weak and we feel like we're going to stumble. And that's when we need to run to Christ. Strength and ability stand as the most admirable qualities within the ranks of Christians. Yet the warning of Jesus Christ to the men that he had mentored for three years ought to serve as a wake-up call to every Christian. I know that this kind of crosses the line of the positive thinking, upsets the put-on-a-happy-face voices of our day, But the fact is that each one of us is flawed at the core of our being. And surely we need a little reminder of that from time to time. Yet it's hard to admit and to personally address. We have no trouble admitting that others are flawed. Someone else has a problem, but not me. It's just much much more difficult when it comes to ourselves, isn't it? Each one of us has a proneness to wonder and leave the God that we love, as the hymn writer so uh, aptly expressed it. It's not that we lack good intentions or even that we fail to be committed to Christ. You know, Peter and the other disciples certainly verify good intentions. Uh, They were committed to Christ, and it's certainly not because... We've never been regenerated. That may be the case with some, of course, but generally not the issue for most. When we gather together this morning, there may be someone who's not saved. But I would say most of us here this morning know the Lord as our Savior. And rather, weakness entered into humanity at the fall of the garden, and of course, through the human genes to the whole race. Human weakness covers our globe. In the new birth, we have been recreated in Christ Jesus. We're new creatures in Christ. We've been given a a new disposition with new desires for holiness. And yet we've not arrived. Since our sanctification continues until the day of glorification. And like Paul, we must... Forget what lies behind and we must press forward to what lies ahead and press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that such uh, possessed and new levels, uh, uh, such possession and new levels of determination calls for an ongoing transformation by the renewing of our minds. So whether it's in the turmoil of exercising contentment in varied demands of life, we learn, I can do all things through Christ, through Christ which strengtheneth me. 
Philippians 4.13. Or whether it is in the pressures of Christian discipleship and service, we discover, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily, Colossians 1.29. Or whether it is in the ongoing battles of temptation and the onslaught of the devil's minions, we regularly see that we must be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, Ephesians 6.10. And it's not my great strength or my ability that's going to get me through this life. That's certainly no call for passivity or apathy or laziness or, well, I'll just let go and let God. Easy on that. Like Paul, we must strive and we must wrestle, we must press toward. But in each case, we must do so in the Lord's strength. In the Lord's strength. Our biggest failure, our biggest flops, follow strong reliance on self. You start depending upon yourself, you can look forward to failure. Peter had not yet learned this truth, even though he had walked three years with Christ, and maybe each one of us have struggled at this point as well, but what Christ spoke to Peter, I think, beckons for our hearts as well. Warnings of our weakness point to Christ's strength. Unfortunately, we sometimes bow up. By the way, that's a southern term for y'all from the south. Bow up. You heard that before? It means to aggressively stand thinking, okay, bring it on. I can do this myself. I don't need anybody else. If you think that way, you're a fool. But unfortunately, there are many, many people who think they don't need God. And that is what the disciples did. And when we do that, we learn the bitter lessons of our natural weakness apart from the union that we have with Christ. And how does Christ teach the disciples some of the most valuable lessons they need and what we need? For all of life. Notice, first of all, the shepherd's announcement. The shepherd's announcement in verse 31 and 32. It says here, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne. Wrong chapter. Here we go. It's only the first mistake I've made in the last five minutes. All right, chapter 26, verse 31. Get the right page here. I'm using a different Bible because this is a little larger print. Does that tell you anything? (laughs) Verse 31, Then said Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Now, Jesus never concerned himself with saying things to meet the approval of his hearers. Upsetting the idea of self-trust seemed to be one of his great specialties, and it still is. The Word of God, you know, has a way of going right to the heart of the issues of life kind of exploding the self-reliant tendencies of our own hearts. 
And in this setting here, the disciples still thought they had everything under control. And in spite of the warnings that Christ had given concerning his impending betrayal and his arrest and his crucifixion and his resurrection, they just didn't want to accept it. They still looked for the earthly kingdom. They were still thinking that Christ would uh, maybe uh, figure some things, had uh, figured some things incorrectly and, and it'd be all sorted out soon. But Jesus' persistence seemed to strike a raw nerve with the disciples after establishing the Lord's Supper. Back in verse 30, you remember they sang a hymn and Jesus and his disciples left the upper room in Jerusalem and they crossed over the Kidron Brook and they made their way up the Mount of Olives. No doubt that brook ran red from the drain off of the bloody Passover sacrifices that had been slain in the Mount. And they crossed, the, uh, they crossed that vivid reminder of the Passover and they began their ascent to their outdoor sanctuary of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus gave them this stark warning then in verse 31 and 32. All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Now, I want you to first notice here, there's a warning. He warns the sheep. The sheep of the flock that would be scattered, he's referring to here as the disciples. All ye shall be offended because of me this night. Jesus was warning them. He says, all. And none of them would escape this sweeping charge. He says, all. The term that's used here, offended, is a common word in the New Testament, translated as stumble, to stumble, or to trip up. Now, we get our English word scandalized from the Greek root of this word. Originally, the word was used uh, of a trap or bait stick used in catching an animal. So the intention is not that the disciples would ever depart from Christ or leave him or have nothing to do with him. Instead, Christ just is warning them, his beloved friends, that because of him, because of the sentence of death upon him, because of the contrary nature of the world to the light of Christ, they would stumble in their relationship with him. They would falter due to the extreme pressure they were about to face in his arrest. Honestly, if we consider that these men knew Christ thoroughly, witnessed Him raising the dead and calming the raging sea, it seemed very unlikely they would ever deny or fail in standing up for Him in His time of need. And what appeared to be one reason that none of them would ever fall because the very, uh, uh, fail Christ because the very reason they would fall away that night. Jesus said, because of me. Are you kidding me? We're, we're gonna fall because of you? We've seen all the things that you've done. He said, you're going to be offended this night. You're going to stumble. You're going to trip up. Jesus clearly painted for the disciples what would take place, the arrest in the garden that would catch them off guard. Rather than expecting him to die, they expected his kingdom uh, to be built and to, uh, to work another way. The cross didn't make sense to these men who knew Jesus best. They saw no reason for him suffering at the hands of godless men. And the truth had been clearly laid out, but the disciples wanted something different than what Christ had foretold. They did not want him to suffer and to die and to be raised from the dead. It was not that they were intentionally rebellious. 
They just didn't understand. The only way for sinful man to be made righteous demanded the death of the only righteous one who ever walked this world. He says, because of me. And that signifies the redemptive substitutionary work of Christ. Because of the divine mission that the Father had given to His Son, a mission not yet understood by His disciples, they would stumble in their faithfulness and their devotion as His followers. And so He gives them a warning. You're going to be offended because of Me. Secondly, notice He was to be smitten by the Father. Now, did Jesus understand what was about to take place? Well, quite obviously he did, since he had already been foretelling the disciples about the details. He turned their thinking to the prophecy of Zechariah. And that prophecy in Zechariah was there to help frame the disciples' understanding of the suffering and the death of the Son of God on their behalf. Not that they would understand this at the time of his arrest, but the disciples would soon be able to put together the wonderful story of the gospel that Christ had given them, especially by showing the continuity of the Old Testament to the revelation of the gospel. He says here, For it is written... I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Now, Zechariah 13, verse 7, speaks of how the Lord God will cut off idolatry and the false prophets from the land, but suddenly the prophecy seems to kind of shift emphasis. It's an interpretation difficult apart from the interpretation that Jesus Christ gives us here. The Lord of hosts speaks in this prophecy rather than the prophet. He says, I will smite the shepherd, declares the Lord of hosts. The shepherd refers to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Who is the one that will strike him down? Well, it's none other than his father. The father will smite the son on behalf of a rebellious race of sinners. It says here, I will smite the shepherd. And that gives to us the divine purpose of Christ's coming. coming. And like Isaiah's suffering servant in Isaiah 53, where he says, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Here's the divine purpose, the divine love expressed in staggering language. Who killed the Son of God on the cross? You know, we often say, well, it was the Romans that did it. Or it was the Jews that sent him to the cross. Or perhaps you have even said it or heard it said, my sins sent Jesus to the cross. But you might say, my sin put him on the cross. Really? Is that what the Bible tells us? What Bible verse or what passage supports that kind of thinking? Now, much could be said about this, but that's really a whole other message. But uh, the truth is this. Your sin did not nail Jesus to the cross. Jesus, the truth is, Jesus took your sins upon himself. 
The Bible says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. And here in our text, Jesus insists it was the Father that sent him to the cross and put him to, the de- to death. He who loved his Son with eternal and infinite love, who knew eternal fellowship and companionship with him in the Godhead, put him through the horror of the cross to satisfy his own justice in forgiving sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And dare we for one moment think that we can navigate our own way to God when God put his son to death before his wrath as the only way that we could know him. Dare we think that we come to God by our own initiative when God has taken the initiative for our salvation. And dare we think that there is something more that we must do to earn our way to God when God struck down his own son in the fierceness of holy wrath in our place. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yes, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. But God loved us. And Jesus took his sin, our sins upon himself. We didn't put him there. God did it. It tells us right here. I will smite the shepherd. That's the God the Father. And notice also he affirms divine triumph. The Father smites the Son in the justice absorbing death of the cross. And that is not the end though. Look at verse 32. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. The cross did not catch Jesus by surprise. He looked for it, but he also looked beyond it to the certainty of resurrection. The disciples heard Jesus speak of being smitten and struck down. Though it appears they failed to hear the triumphant news of the next sentence. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. In obedience to the Father, our Lord willingly journeyed to the cross. He knew what lay ahead in the terms of of physical suffering and pain. And even more, he knew that the moments would come when, for the first time in eternity, the Son would know the wrath of the Father. He would feel the weightiness and the loneliness of separation from the Father and the cry of neglect, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That would resound through the heavens. As Jesus Christ suffered on our behalf that we might be brought into a relationship with the living God. Yes, the Father would strike him down, but he would also raise him from the dead. The passive voice very precisely tells us that what would take place. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Paul said it this way, Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Romans 6, 4. It was the Father that put him to the grief, and it was the Father that raised him from the dead. 
accepting his redemptive work on our behalf, announcing it in the resurrection. I think one more thing is noticeable here. Jesus told the disciples that after suffering death, then the glory of being raised from the dead, he says, I will go before you into Galilee. Now let's kind of put that all together for a moment. He declared that they would fall away because of him. They would stumble. They would be offended. The shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered. But the certainty of what he would do on the cross and in the resurrection guaranteed that he would rejoin them as triumphant followers of a triumphant Christ. They would fall away, but it would be a temporary, short-lived defeat. Christ's death and resurrection secured their relationship with him and their fellowship with him. They would shortly feel dejected in Jerusalem, but they would soon feel the elation of divine triumph when Jesus Christ would be seen once again in Galilee. And everything was happening according to his divine plan. Nothing was out of line. Not even in the sheep scattering. From their point of view, because of him, they would fall away. But from the divine point of view, because of him, they would meet together again in Galilee. So that's the shepherd's announcement. He warns them. He tells them that he would be smitten by the Father. But there would be a great triumph, a great victory. Notice the sheep's answer. Don't you just love argumentative sheep? Just like, just love it when people always have something negative to say or, or always disagree. Jesus clearly laid out what would happen in just a few hours. And then in verse 33, notice it there. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Now, I want you to notice here, he uses the word offended. The same word that Jesus used means stumbled or enticed to sin, to fall. Now, we have to admire his determination. You know, he, he was a, a full of spunk and he was, he was ready to go. But what we cannot admire and we must learn from his failures to understand our own weakness and our need for Christ. You see, he wasn't alone. It says all the disciples said the same thing. Now we just have Peter's name here, but it says all of the disciples said the same thing, didn't they? All of them thought they were invincible when it came to their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And what do we learn about them that, we might, that might be true of us at some point along the journey? Well, number one, there's unthinking presumption. Jesus had told Peter and the rest of the disciples, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. Yet Peter objected. Christ spoke with absolute authority as a sovereign Lord. Jesus, or Peter disagreed and he he voiced it. He wasn't bashful. Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Peter obviously thought less of his fellow disciples than he did of himself. You know, these other fellows, hey, they might stumble and they might fall away, but I, I'll never, never, never fall away. We're somewhat accustomed to Peter sticking his foot into his mouth, aren't we? If you've read anything about the disciples, Peter always seems to be sticking his foot into his mouth. 
and this may have been one of the biggest gaffes recorded in his life, he exaggerated his own abilities and the strength and level of commitment when he objected to the word of Christ. He thought himself to be above the others, more determined, great, having greater fortitude. He was tougher than they were. He was more rugged than any of them. It's kind of though he was patting himself on the back, having successfully corrected Jesus at this point. And yet Jesus does not hesitate to single out Peter to demonstrate the deep-seated presumption that directed his life. Look at verse 34. Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Now, in that time, the night was divided into four watches. There was the early evening, that was six to nine. There was late evening, then nine to midnight. Then there was what was called cock crow. It was midnight to 3 a.m., and the morning was 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And the roosters would usually crow about 3 a.m. in the morning, so that term, cock crow, stuck for that period of time. And so Jesus told him that before the rooster crowed, somewhere around 3 a.m., he would deny three times that he even knew Christ. For one as proud as Peter, that was pretty hard to take. Yet Jesus applied this painful lesson to Peter in order to uproot the think, unthinking presumption that drove his life. Presumption displays itself various ways. Sometimes it shows up in cockiness about a personal perception of one's spiritual maturity. Sometimes it's revealed by thinking that one could not possibly taken, be taken down by a grievous sin. Others consider that they can just, well, I can just coast along in my spiritual uh, disciplines and I can just maintain a substantial spiritual life. Some think they do not need regular, faithful participation and the ministry of the word, for instance, in church, in order to keep them spiritually sharpened. Unfortunately, we preachers are some of the most presumptuous And sometimes we fail to guard our own lives in these areas. And so there's unthinking presumption. Secondly, we notice there's high-minded arrogance. Looking down his nose at others, Peter could say, Though all men, that is these other disciples, all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. I understand that the last phrase there is very emphatic in the great Greek. Peter tried to make a point that he was a cut above the others. He went so far as to declare in verse 35, notice it there, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. The other disciples said the same thing too. All of them were in the same boat. They devalued the commitment of others and exaggerated their own. Instead of being clothed in humility, they cloaked themselves in pride and in self-importance. Psalm, or Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. God resisteth the proud but giveth grace to the humble, James tells us. And so there was a high-minded arrogance. Notice, thirdly, a willful ignorance. 
I think the worst part of this story is the way that Peter refused to accept what Christ had spoken. In verse 34, Jesus warns Peter that before the cock crowed during the night, he would deny him three times. And rather than being humbled by the truth of Christ, and rather than repenting of a haughty, self-assured attitude displayed, Peter says, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Again, the rest had the same attitude, but they had not been singled out in a way that Christ singled out Peter. Jesus spoke and Peter disagreed. He disbelieved him. Could Peter have shown more arrogance toward the truth? And yet even more, could he have been more willfully ignorant? He was basking in his own ignorance. It's as though he told Jesus Christ, well, that's your opinion. That's your opinion how things are going to shake out. You know, you have your opinion and I have mine. Ever heard somebody tell you that? Well, that's your opinion. Well, I have my own. You've given them the word of God and they say, well, that's your opinion. You know, that's what Peter's saying. He says, I'm more willing to die with you if it comes to that. So I know that I will not deny you. Willful ignorance is much worse than plain ignorance. Peter was ignorant of what would happen because he would not believe the word of Christ. Yet the same thing happens today regularly. When God has spoken something in his word, how many times do we willfully choose to ignore it? Or do we add our own twist to kind of reinterpret it to mean what we want it to mean? Or just deny what it says and then when uh, we've done the same thing that Peter has done. You wonder how such a thing could happen to someone like Peter. Will it happen in the same way that it happens to you and me? It's called stubbornness. Stubbornness in persisting in having our own way rather than the way that we view everything about us. When the word of God plows over our way of thinking and it leads to willful ignorance and a fall. Pride in our own understanding of life and the will of God. Assuming that our thoughts are God's thoughts. Leads to willful ignorance and a certain fall. We can get ourselves into some sticky situations that lead to spiritual decline, all because we resist hearing and heeding the Word of God. And the simple guidance commanded by Solomon centuries before continues to serve as the best remedy to unthinking presumption and high-minded arrogance and willful ignorance. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. So we have here the shepherd's announcement, the sheep's answer, and the simple advice. We must learn from Peter's tragic failure some important advice which fits each one of our lives. Peter and The other disciples, they all had good intentions. They were all devoted to Christ. They desired to be faithful to Him. And we we shouldn't think, you know, they were cold-hearted or they were rebellious. These were good men that failed to grasp the weakness of their own heart 
and the need to cast everything upon Christ. And so the advice or the instruction that is given to us here, first of all, is beware of self-deceit. You know, Peter's biggest problem was himself. My biggest problem is right here, is me. And that's the way it was with Peter. His biggest problem was himself. And I dare say your biggest problem is the one sitting in your clothes this morning. You know, it wasn't a mob that came to arrest Jesus or a servant girl questioning his relationship. It wasn't Peter's failure to see that at the root of his life he was weak and self-serving. He didn't know it, though Christ had clued him in. He wanted to think better of himself. I think all of us do. Oh, I won't, I won't offend. Are you, I, you won't be, uh, I won't be offended because of you. Uh, I'd rather die than be offended. But we need to recognize that apart from Christ, apart from the grace and the strength that he gives, we will favor ourselves even to the point of self-deceit. Dare we pray, Lord, open my eyes that I might recognize my own tendency for weakness, sin, and selfishness. Open my eyes lest I fall into a life of self-deceit. Beware of self-deceit. Secondly, heed the word of Christ. Heed the word of Christ. Peter and the other disciples heard what Jesus said, but they disagreed. They failed to heed Christ and obey. Listen, right at the heart of of most every situation in our lives where, where we slip into coldness or fall into sin is this very thing right here. It's not that we don't know the truth. It's that we choose not to obey it. We choose not to take heed to it. The word that God has spoken to us. Dare we pray, Lord, bind me to the word of God. Keep my eyes fixed upon your truth and my heart beating in sync with your commands. And then thirdly, trust Christ's faithfulness. I think the most important statement of this whole text, it's a wonderful statement here, and it's in verse 32. But after I am risen again, but after I am risen again, Christ had no doubt that he was going to be raised from the dead. He says, after I have been risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. You're going to flop, you're going to fail, But because of what I have accomplished for you at the cross and in the resurrection, you can be certain I'm going to meet you again in fellowship. Dare we pray, Lord, deliver me from trusting myself. I cast myself upon you and you alone. The reality is that even as followers of Christ... We can be so much like these disciples. They have Jesus Christ right there in the flesh. They can see him right before their eyes. They have the living word. You know what? We have the written word. 
right in our hands this morning. And many of us have spent years with the Lord and His Word, and yet we become unthinkingly presumptuous. We become high-mindedly arrogant and willfully ignorant. And because we have not listened to the Lord through our self-deception, we have not taken heed to God's word, we're not trusting in the Lord's faithfulness, and our lives have been centered around ourselves, and we become me-centric instead of God-centric. I read a quote recently. went like this. When science discovers the center of the universe, many people would be disappointed it wasn't them. My sins did not nail Jesus to the cross. He went to the cross because that was God's plan for redemption. And he loved me so much that Jesus Christ was willing to take my sins upon himself. And he was willing to pay the penalty. God put Jesus on the cross for you and for me. But as our text here indicates, he did not stay there. Yes, he died, but he rose again to promise us eternal life. Praise God. Let's pray.